ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. If you're using a Bible in the pocket of the chair in front of you, you can find that on page 917. Acts chapter 9, of course, is a very familiar passage to uh, most of us here, giving us the account of the conversion of the Apostle uh, Paul here. And children, if you like to draw during uh, worship and your parents are okay with you doing that, you might consider drawing a picture of a, of a man walking on a road with a city in front of him and then this great bright light in the sky. Not the sun, so you might draw maybe a big light bulb or something uh, of that nature if you uh, want to draw something about the sermon. Uh, with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Listen to it, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, going to the end of verse 19. But Paul, or Saul rather, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight." But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you, so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's ask God's blessing upon the hearing and the preaching of his word. Lord, we do thank you for this means of grace, this wonderful gift and privilege that you have given us, your people. We pray that you would be with those who are hearing your word preached this evening, that any cares, any carnal cares in their minds, Lord, um, they would take those thoughts captive and that they would be focused on the preached word. Lord, we pray that their eyes would be open, their ears would hear, and their hearts would receive your truth. We pray that you would be with me, your servant, your jar of clay, that I would faithfully, accurately, and articulately convey your truth to your people for your glory. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. 
Well, I wonder if you've ever had this experience, likely you have, where you gather together with the church, and maybe it's uh, for a Bible study or a Sunday school hour, and instead of a proper teaching time, what uh, you decide to do is just go around the room and share testimonies, how the Lord has saved you. You share your conversion story. And as you listen to other people and how the Lord has brought them out of death into life, the, the person beside you who's going right before you starts to give their testimony. And it turns out they have this quite bizarre, exciting testimony where they used to be a drug dealer, perhaps, or, or maybe the Lord saved them while they were in prison for some heinous crime, or they had a, a very serious uh, and discouraging background in their life, and yet the Lord had redeemed them uh, from that. And you maybe scratch your head and you think to yourself, well, my conversion story is going to be quite embarrassing now because I can't remember a time when I wasn't saved. I can't remember a time when I didn't believe in Jesus Christ. Or maybe you have a similar story, like the drug dealer, but you think about the conversion story of the Apostle Paul, and you think, well, I never had this Damascus Road experience. I never saw a bright light in the sky. I never had the ascended Jesus Christ to talk with me. And you might think your conversion story is a lesser. But there's nothing insignificant about someone who is dead who is rotting, has no breath in their lungs, being brought from death and being brought to life. It is an amazing thing that the Lord Jesus does for his people in our conversion. And we do see this amazing conversion story here uh, in the book of Acts. And what we're going to see is what a true conversion is. While we may not have an amazing story like the Apostle Paul here, We all do have similar stories that he has. We all have similar things in our conversion. And there are really four main things that are true of every conversion experience. The first is that Jesus is the one who takes the initiative in bringing about your conversion. The second is that in every conversion story, there is a conviction of sin. The third is a call to faith. And the fourth is a commitment to discipleship. So we see divine initiative, a conviction of sin, a call to faith, and a commitment to discipleship. Now as we consider Acts 9 here, this is the first of three different accounts of the Apostle Paul's testimony. The first is Acts 9, and it's a third-person account. The other two are first-person accounts in Acts 22 and Acts 26. And in each one of those accounts, there's a little bit uh, more detail that's given. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be taking all three of these conversion stories, conversion accounts, and we're going to be uh, kind of synthesizing them, harmonizing them together to see what is going on, what is taking place. So you'll often hear me reference Acts 22 and Acts 26 as we go through the sermon uh, this evening. Also, it's very confusing sometimes when we talk about Saul or we talk about Paul, and you might hear me use those two names interchangeably, and I trust you'll be patient with me. We're talking about the same person here. So Saul and Paul. So with that, let's first consider the first element of a true conversion, and that is divine initiative. And we see that in verses 1 through 3, and this is how the text opens. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So we get this word, still breathing threats and murder. This is hearkening back. Luke is reminding us of Acts chapter 8, where the text tells us that Paul, or Saul, see, I already did it once. Saul is ravaging the church. He's persecuting the church in Jerusalem. And some time has taken place. We don't know how much time, but in any case, he is still at it. He is still breathing murder and threats against the church of Jesus Christ. 
And as you consider the book of Acts, it's really one overarching narrative about how the Holy Spirit is poured out and how the gospel goes forth to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And within that narrative, there are different story arcs that take place. And so this is kind of towards the end <clears throat> excuse me, of one of those story arcs that begins in Acts chapter 6. It begins with the Greek Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, the Greek-speaking Christians. They were being neglected, their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so we see the uh, office of deacon is first instituted. And we see that these deacons... Um, uh, Stephen was one of them, Philip was another, and after that we follow uh, the, the story of Stephen. And in that story we get introduced to Saul, who ends up approving of the martyr of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, the first Christian to be killed for his faith. And then we get a little snippet in Acts 8 of what Saul is doing, how he's ravaging the church. He's going from house to house, and he's dragging out men and women from their homes, and he's arresting them, putting them on trial, and having them killed. And then the text switches over, and it follows Philip, another one of those deacons who was a zealous evangelist like Stephen. And now the narrative is coming back to Saul. So that's the the kind of overarching narrative or or story arc in this uh, particular section of the book uh, of Acts. And as we consider what Saul is doing, we don't get a whole lot of information in Acts 9 or in Acts 8, but we do get quite a bit of information as you go through the New Testament. Even as you hear the redeemed man Saul, the Apostle Paul, speak about his days as the man who was ravaging the church. So some of those passages in Acts 22.4, we read that Saul was committed to persecuting the church to the death. He had no quarter. There was no mercy given. In Acts 26.9, we see that Saul is voting for the execution of Christians. And he has this raging fury that he not only stays in Jerusalem, but he travels to foreign cities to root out these Christians who have scattered from Jerusalem. In Galatians 3.1, Paul tells us that at this time, his singular focus was to destroy the church. And then in 1 Timothy 1.13, Saul tells us that he was an insolent, blaspheming opponent of Jesus Christ. Now, this may not land on us emotionally, like perhaps that it should, because we kind of know how the story ends. We know that this man Saul is going to be converted. We just read it a few moments ago. But put yourself in the shoes of the Christians then. Imagine you're sitting there in your home, you're eating dinner, you've just prayed to the Lord, thanking him for the food, and you hear this knock on the door, the door gets kicked open, and your wife gets pulled out by her hair, or your husband is dragged off to jail for being a believer. That lands on us a little bit more emotionally, doesn't it? This is what Saul was doing. And in fact, if Saul had the same resources that Emperor Nero did, he likely would have been just as bad in his persecution of the church. But unlike Nero, he has to get permission for what he can do. And so we read here in Acts 9, he's still breathing threats and murder against the church. He hears about Christians who have scattered from Jerusalem and they've gone all the way to Damascus. So he goes to the high priest and we see that he asks the high priests for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if there's any belonging to the way, men or women, he can arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. So essentially what Saul is asking here is for a search warrant or an arrest 
warrant to go and to arrest the Christians who were scattered. This was his regular practice. He didn't just stay in Jerusalem. It wasn't just Damascus. These are the stories that we read, but this is what he would do all the time. And so he gets approval to be able to go to Damascus to arrest those who belong to the way. Notice how Christians are described. They're described as those who belong to the way. The word Christian has not yet been used. It's not used until you get to Acts chapter 11, and it's used in a derogatory sense at that point. But we kind of own it. But they're called the way. Now, why are believers of Jesus Christ known as those who belong to the way? Well, what do you as believers in Jesus Christ talk about? Well, hopefully you're talking about Jesus. And this is what the early Christians were doing. Everywhere they went, even as they were scattered from Jerusalem, we read that they went preaching and teaching of the gospel. They were talking about Jesus Christ. And who does Jesus say he is in the book of John? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the sweet irony here is that even as Saul is trying to persecute the way, he can't talk about the way, he can't talk about Jesus with giving credit to who Jesus says he is, the way, the only way to the Father. And so we have to ask another question. You think about Damascus geographically. Where is Damascus in comparison to Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem's down here. Damascus is about 100 miles north. So how is it that people in Jerusalem can travel all the way up to Damascus and arrest people? That seems like that would be outside of their jurisdiction. And it is. But at this time, remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they had a pretty sweet relationship with the Romans to where the Romans would allow them to go and extradite uh, criminals who committed crimes in Jerusalem. They were able to extradite them and bring them back. And so this is what Saul is doing. And so this is what he does. He, he gathers the temple guard. He brings quite the cohort with him to travel 100 miles north to arrest those who belong to the way. He sets out on this hunt But we see the great irony again that the hunter becomes the prey. Notice what happens as he's on his way to Damascus. As he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now because, again, this is such a familiar story, we can miss the miraculous that's taking place here. We don't read it here in Acts 9, but in Acts 26 we get an account of what time of day the light shone. It was midday when the sun is at its highest and the sun is at its brightest. And they were in a desert land. If you've ever been in the desert before, you know how blinding the sun it can be. But in the middle of the day, when the sun is at its brightest, in the desert, a great light shone upon Paul. And it's excruciatingly bright. So much so that it causes Paul to fall to the ground. And we're going to see that momentarily. But what we're seeing here is we're seeing Jesus take the divine initiative to bring about the conversion of his man, Saul. Jesus' arm is not too short to save those who hate him. He hears the cries of his people, even as they're praying, knowing that this scourge of the church is on his way up to them. And the Lord answers that prayer. By intervening, by taking the initiative and coming upon Saul, this man who hates him, this man who hates his people. This is the first step in every true conversion. Jesus comes to you. That's the first step. 
What is the, the second step? The second step is that as Jesus comes to you, there is this conviction of sin. And we see this in verses 4 through 5. There's this proud, arrogant, hateful man marching his way up to Damascus is humiliated and humbled by this light. He falls to the ground. This is what the text tells us. He falls to the ground and he hears this voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we don't see here in Acts 9 this detail, but in Acts 22, Luke tells us, or Paul tells us through his first-hand account, what language Jesus was speaking. And the language is that of Hebrew. Jesus could have been speaking Greek. He could have been speaking any number of languages, but he chose to speak Hebrew. Why? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to back up a little bit and think about kind of the beginning of this narrative arc that took place in Acts 6. Because remember, Acts 6, these are, this is the account where the Hellenistic widows were being neglected. The Greek-speaking Jews were being neglected. And we end up seeing that Stephen, a Hellenist himself, is ordained as a deacon. And following that narrative, we follow Stephen, who as soon as he's ordained, we don't really get any account of what he actually does as a deacon, though I'm sure he was a faithful deacon. We get an account of him being a zealous evangelist. And in Acts 6, we read that he would go to this one particular synagogue, you can look there in your scriptures, the synagogue of the freedmen. And then the text tells us kind of different geographical locations of where these freedmen would come from. So likely, these, the synagogue of the freedmen had its name because there were many who were likely slaves at one point and either worked their way out of slavery or they were bought out of slavery or, or something of that nature. And they all tended to worship at this one a synagogue. Not all of them were slaves, but enough of them were to where they earned this name, synagogue of the freedmen. So we see that Stephen is there and he's disputing with them or he's arguing with them. He's sharing with them about Jesus. And we read that none of them could stand up to him. None of them were able to respond. Now, here's an interesting thing to think about. We don't know this for sure, but when we read about who were at the synagogue of the freedmen, they were one, uh, one group was from this area of Cilicia. And where is a Cilicia? Or what is in Cilicia, we might ask? A city called Tarsus. And where is Saul from? Tarsus. So we don't know this for sure, but it's possible. It's possible that Stephen was disputing with Saul, and Saul was not able to hold his own. This man who knew the law back and forth was not able to hold his own. And what does this result in? But it results in ravenous persecution there in Jerusalem. And we read in the beginning of Acts 8, as Saul begins to persecute the church, that the Christians left, all except the apostles. Now, the term all that Luke uses, what he is describing is not every single Christian. What he is describing is particularly the Hellenist Christians. And we follow Philip, who flees, who's a Hellenist. And so what Paul is doing here is he's primarily targeting the Greek-speaking believers, because he sees these people as those who are coming in and bringing in this heresy, as he sees it, into the Jewish faith. Which is why it is so amazing that we get this detail that Jesus, meeting with Saul, speaks not Greek, 
but Hebrew. Why are you persecuting me in Hebrew? And it's all starting to make sense for Saul. That what he viewed as a heresy is actually truth that was proclaimed in the Hebrew scriptures. The scriptures that he knows, the scriptures that he loves. So Jesus asks him this question, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is so terrified, he doesn't give an answer. He doesn't try to explain himself. He couldn't explain himself. Rather, he asks a question back. Who are you, Lord? Again, showing that he is subservient to the voice. And the voice says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Notice the intimate connection that Jesus makes with his people, that Jesus makes with you, that Jesus makes with his bride, the church. As someone comes against the way, as someone comes against Christianity, as the church is persecuted, it is Jesus himself who is being attacked. And Jesus will not have that. And he goes and he asks, why are you persecuting me, my body? Now imagine the gut-wrenching emotion that Saul would have been feeling at this time. And this is where the conviction of sin comes into play here. And there are two big things that are happening. One, he's got the fear of the light that just kind of popped out of nowhere. And this voice, Jesus, appearing to him, the resurrected, ascended Jesus, talking to him. So you have that. That's fearful enough. But then, Jesus is saying, You're persecuting me. You're attacking me. There must have been great terror that Saul felt. And he's starting to connect the dots here. He's starting to put the pieces together. Here Jesus is talking to him, a man who Saul thought was dead. A man who Saul thought was buried. A man who Saul thought perhaps maybe the tomb is empty because the disciples moved it. But a dead man doesn't talk. And Jesus is talking. Jesus did not stay dead. Jesus rose from the grave, and he's talking to Saul now, and Saul is starting to get it. And Jesus, as the one who rose from the dead, everything that Jesus said is proven to be true. And Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And you remember, that's really why he was crucified. It was the jealousy of the religious leaders and the fact that he was blaspheming, saying that he was God. But as Saul is hearing Jesus talk to him now, he's realizing that Jesus was in fact innocent and that they put him on trial and murdered an innocent man. Furthermore, he's thinking Jesus said he was the Messiah. He said he was the son of God. He said he is God himself. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? That is Jesus. He's recognizing Jesus is the one who is over the church. Jesus is the one that Saul has been ravaging this whole time. And Jesus is the one who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And like a tsunami, the guilt and the shame washes over this man's soul. And with the knowledge of his sin comes that emotion of guilt, that emotion of shame. And one commentator says what Jesus is doing here. He says, Jesus' words were an overture of grace given in the form of a rebuke. Well, why? Because Jesus does not leave Saul 
in his state of sin and misery. Jesus is the one who takes the divine initiative. Jesus is the one who convicts Saul of his sin. And Jesus is the one who then calls him to faith. And you can see that in verses 6 through 7. So Saul here, he's listening to all this. He's being confronted with the fact that he's been wrong his entire life. His whole worldview is turned upside down. And so he asks the most profound question. You don't see it here in Acts 9. But again, in the account of Acts 22, he asks, Now what? Or what must I do? What shall I do? And notice that question. It's one of the best questions you could possibly ask. As Jesus comes before you, convicts you of your sin, you ask, what shall I do? Saul asked it, and it was the same question that the Jews asked in Acts 2 and Pentecost. After Peter had uh, preached to them and had shown them that they were responsible for the murder of Jesus Christ, they asked, what shall I do? Saul asks, what shall I do? And while Luke only gives us a snippet of the conversation, he says, Jesus, in response to Saul, says, rise, enter the city, and you will be told what to do. But in Paul's own account of his conversion in Acts 26, as he's talking to King Agrippa, he gives us more detail about how Jesus responds to his question, what shall I do? And this is what Jesus says in Acts 22, 16 through 18. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I want you to think about how powerful this commission that Jesus gives to Saul is for him for the rest of his life. Think think about this. So he's hearing this. He's hearing the voice of Jesus Christ. Jesus is ripping him out of the kingdom of darkness. He's taking him from the domain of Satan. He's bringing him into his own kingdom, the kingdom of light. And Paul thinks about this throughout his whole ministry as he's called to go to the Gentiles and to the Jews. And he had to be thinking about this as he's writing to the Corinthians. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians 4 and hear it in light of his conversion story as light shines upon him. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. We're coming into the middle of an argument here, but this is what Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of Jesus Christ has shone from the darkness, blinding Paul, but bringing Paul to himself. And he gives him this great commission to go and to preach to Jews and to Gentiles. Not everybody saw the light. 
we read in the text that the men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless. They didn't see the light, but they did hear the voice. And we don't know if they heard the voice audibly or if it was a deep rumble that they could hear. But in any case, there was fear. But notice that Jesus comes for his man particularly. Now, these men may have been saved later on. We have no idea. But Jesus is there for Saul, for his chosen instrument. And this man, Saul, who was charging, marching to Damascus with power, with authority to conquer the way, is led in like a small, humble child by the hand, brought into this city. And he's blind. And he sits in a room by himself. And he doesn't eat or drink for three days. Think about how long those three days must have been. He's sitting there, hungry, thirsty, pondering his shattered worldview, thinking about the implications of the resurrected Christ, weighing the call that the Lord gave him. And he sits and he thinks and he wrestles with this call to faith that Jesus has given him. We switch scenes now. And we look at the last point, the last element of a true conversion. We've seen Jesus takes the divine initiative. Jesus is the one who convicts us of our sin. He calls us to faith. And we're going to see the last part, that as true disciples, those who are truly converted, we are committed to a discipleship. So the scene shifts here in verse 10. We read that there was a man, a disciple, in Damascus, whose name was Ananias. Now, this is not the same Ananias from Acts 5 who lied to the Holy Spirit and was ultimately uh, killed because of that. But this is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn in Acts 22 a little bit more detail about him. Yes, we know that he was a devout man, that he was a disciple of Jesus. But in Acts 22, we see that this man was devoted to the law. And he was a Jew. He was a Jew devoted to the law. And think about why that's important. Who's he going to go talk to momentarily? He's going to go talk to a Jew who's devoted to the law, this man Saul. And the Lord has particular people that he sends to particular people to redeem them. And the Lord has been setting apart this man, Ananias. Every time he studies the word, every time he's reading through the law, the Lord's plan was for him to go and to share the gospel with this man, Saul. The Lord prepares his people for his work. But in any case, the Lord comes and he speaks to this man, Ananias, in a vision. And he says, Ananias. And notice there's no hesitation. He says, here I am. And Jesus says to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. Go to this house owned by this man, Judas. You're going to find this guy from Tarsus who's blind. Saul, I've sent a vision to him. He knows you're coming. Pretty simple task, but a hard task. You see how Ananias responds. He responds, hold up. We know about this guy. We've heard about this man, Saul. We heard about all the wreckage that he caused in Jerusalem. And we know that he's here for the particular purpose to arrest people like me. This is a wicked man, Jesus. This is a man who hates you. This is a man who hates us. This is a man who seeks our destruction. This is a man who wants to see us die. A hard calling. 
a simple job, profoundly difficult. And Jesus doesn't just say, go, do it because I told you to. He gives the reason. Jesus says, go. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. From eternity past, Jesus has picked this man, Saul, as his chosen instrument for his chosen task. Now, this may be self-evident, but you think about an instrument, you think about a piano. The piano doesn't play itself, does it? No. And Saul, the apostle Paul, as he's sent out, as he's commissioned, as he goes and he preaches the gospel, as we see church planted, or churches planted under this man, we see most of the New Testament written by his hand, we know that this is the work of Jesus himself, working through his chosen instrument, this man, Saul. And we see what he's going to be doing. He's going to be going to Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel. And as you follow the ministry of Saul, this is exactly what he does. In fact, in the other two accounts of his conversion story, one is to Jews and the other is to a king. Our sovereign Lord has planned all of this out. Saul is his chosen instrument. Ananias trusts his Lord And he obeys and he goes to the house. He lays his hands on him. He doesn't lay his hands on him to choke him. Like you and I might want to. Look at how he talks to him. He says, brother Saul. This familial term of endearment, term of love. And it's quite instructive for us. As you think about the culture today, you think about all of those who hate Jesus, who hate the church, who hate the truth, who want to see the church destroyed, we know, we know Jesus can save wicked, wicked people. Jesus has saved you after all, has he not? And our response ought not to be one of hate, but as Jesus redeems his people, it ought to be one of love. As Jesus brings his people to his church. And so he comes and he says, Brother Saul, The Jesus who appeared to you on the road to Damascus, he appeared also to me. And he told me to come to you and put my hands on you so that you may receive your sight and you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as he says this, scales, something like scales fall from his eyes. He has been blind for three days. He couldn't see anything. And now, suddenly with these words, he sees. The new birth has taken place. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's baptized. He eats. He regains his strength. And notice what else he does. How does verse 19 end? He goes and he spends time with who? With the disciples. Think about the, the irony and the, the almost, like we would say, insanity even. This man who has come to Damascus with the sole purpose of arresting these people of persecuting them, of seeing to their death, now goes to them in sweet brotherly fellowship because Jesus has redeemed them and him. And we see that Saul, as a converted man, does not go off and do his own thing. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. We cannot be those who are converted who then ignore Jesus and his church. And by ignoring the church of Jesus Christ, we're ignoring Jesus himself. 
This, of course, is the implication. As Saul was persecuting the church, he was persecuting Jesus. As you step away from the church, you step away from Jesus. And this is not what Saul did. Saul embraces the church. He embraces the disciples. This is the fourth aspect of a true conversion, a commitment to discipleship, a commitment to the church. If there's no desire to be with Jesus, to be with his people, we have to ask a very hard question. What is true of our conversion? If we don't want to be with the Lord and his people, are we truly saved? Are we truly redeemed? Now that doesn't mean you can never have any frustrations with the church. The church is made up of redeemed sinners. And what do redeemed sinners do? We sin, often against one another. But the Lord has forgiven us. And as forgiven people, we then are to be a forgiving people. And there may be true concerns about particular churches for one reason or another. But the point is, if there's no desire to commune with other believers, we have to ask why. There's a few different reasons. One could be maybe our conversion is not a true conversion. But maybe it is. Likely it is. So what's going on? Maybe there's unrepentant sin in our hearts. Maybe that is what's quenching our affection for the church. Maybe we're harboring bitterness and anger at our fellow believers. Maybe there's a sense of pride, one that we might never put it this way, but maybe in how we behave that says that that we're, we're better than other Christians. We don't need the church. We don't need to be with God's people because we've got it together. We know it all. I don't think any of us would say that. But sometimes we might with our actions. And all three of these things are true of Saul in his unregenerate state. He had unrepentant sin, hate, that caused him to do horrible things to the people of God made in the image of God. He obviously had anger and bitterness, and this was directed in his fury to the people of God. And he clearly thought that he was theologically superior to everyone else. Otherwise, he wouldn't be doing what he did. But just as Jesus intervened in the life of Saul, so does he intervene in your life as well, in the life of all of his children. Jesus redeemed Saul, and Jesus can redeem you as well. Now consider your own conversion. Consider your own conversion. Jesus is the one who takes that first step. Jesus is the one who takes that divine initiative. And you may be thinking, I'm wrapping up here, you may be thinking, well, I'm waiting for Jesus. If Jesus is the one who takes the divine initiative, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait. If Jesus wants me, he can come get me. And maybe you're waiting for some Damascus Road experience. But Jesus is doing that right now at this very moment. It's no accident that you are here this evening. It's no accident you're sitting in the chair that you are. It's no accident that you're hearing the word preached to you today. Where you're hearing this call to have a true conversion, this call to repentance, this call to Jesus. Jesus takes divine initiative. Second, Jesus is the one who convicts us of our sins. This is what Jesus has done for Saul. This is what Jesus has done for all of us. We can think back experientially and know when our sin was revealed to us. And there's a call to faith. 
called the faith and repentance. And finally, that all culminates in a commitment to discipleship, a commitment to the church, a commitment to Jesus Christ. Do you have a true conversion? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you are a God of grace, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God of forgiveness. We thank you that you are a God who redeems sinners like us, who unite us to yourself, who take us from the kingdom of Satan and into your kingdom, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Lord, we thank you that you are our God, our covenant God, and that we are your covenant people. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.